Tim. This is Jason. This is Jeremy and John. I'm, I'm Jeremy and John. How are you guys doing? Doing good. How are you doing, Tim? Good. Well, here's what we're doing. We're giving you a call real quick to see uh, if you would mind. We're doing a podcast, and we're wondering if you'd be a guest on our podcast. Yes, I'd love to be. That's going to be awesome. This is going to be cool to talk old times and, and new times. And new times and... I don't know what else we'll talk about. I hope you can come up with something because I don't know what I, I don't know what to talk about. I'm sure we'll find something. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's a lot of stuff to talk about in between mandolins and banjos and guitars. All right. Absolutely, You're going all Songs day. And stuff. Yeah. Songs. That'll do it. Well, I appreciate it so much, Tim. Look forward to talking to you. Okay. to say anything after the last it sounded time. like you were going to start this one, Jer. I, I just wanted to make sure we were on the same topic Jer, that we were last start time. This one? So it seems like we've already started. <laughs> we might have, we Guys, might have started already. We, we had this conversation a couple podcasts ago about vacations, and then we all decided to go camping over uh, Labor Day weekend. It seems like we record podcasts after we're all together for an entire weekend. That seems like a bad idea. <laughs> yeah, well, it's it makes sure that we're absolutely aggravated with each other and done. Feel the Start. <laughs> you guys decided what was to. What the quote uh, from YouTube? You guys uh, glamped with your glamour campers. I enjoy the uh, apparent contempt you have for each other. <laughs> I think I believe that was a quote. Cool, I love that. I that was a good one. I want to say I have never been shamed so much as somebody who walks around with their tent and walk around with a tent That's so and and their uh, Dutch oven cooking with the with the briquettes. I find it weird. The new mustache Jeremy puts on his chaps and the cook shack. He pulls his trailer. I'm going for makes Sam us Elliott. call him Cookie for the whole weekend. <laughs> Just trying, trying to become Sam Elliott. Uh, that was a fun weekend. It was tiring, um, but Dutch the weather ovens. was nice. My Dutch got oven multiple Dutch ovens stacked. Guys, I made a triple meal. We're not talking about food. Dutch oven, Dutch oven, <laughs> then a frying pan on top of that. Made my whole breakfast. Biscuits yeah. and gravy, some cinnamon rolls with the kids, I bacon fry on top. Old I had my Blackstone and my uh, portable... <laughs> Uh, pellet smoker I like, cooking all week. My wagon got that. stuck on the way there and the kids had to push it. <laughs> you know what I got to thinking? Uh, my kids, as soon as I pull out of the driveway, are, where we're going on a trip, it's always, uh, are we almost there? I like literally, we get to the end of our street. Mm -hmm. How much farther is it? Yeah. I got to think, do you think that happened like during the Oregon oh, yeah. Trail? Like, <laughs> they just start pulling up. How much farther? Was it, was it Wagons months? East? Sit down. I think it was the movie Wagons East. Remember that? Uh, <laughs> I think you're right. And the kid, as soon as they pulled out of St. Louis, the kid in the back goes, how much further is it? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, guys, good uh, it's good to be back. Um, um, no, I have one more, one okay. more uh, point of uh, yeah, point contention. of contention. No, do it. No, just a point of order from the last camping <laughs> trip. We did not find Gerald, uh, your daughter's uh, oh, no. pet rock. We couldn't find. He was gone. So yeah. what did she leave with? Because I saw she had one there. Are you sure it wasn't in the van with, with you? It might be. Did somewhere. you guys fake? I think we, she we found a rock with a string around it. <laughs> And my daughter named it Gerald, knows her pet rock. I think she's forgotten about it, so let's not bring it she up. She brought yeah, one home. I could have swear. Like, it was there know. right before you I was guys told to try to, to find leave. it, and we immediately went out and tried to find it, and it was not there. So <laughs> he ran off, apparently. Yeah, he must have got to the highway and got run over. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Well, thank you for bringing that up. I, was, I hope she doesn't listen to the podcast. <laughs> she's got she's going to be heartbroken. Oh, yeah. now it's all over. I'll tie another What's rock with a string. <laughs> but uh, Tim O'Brien, guys, he's going to be our guest today. Yes. Very excited about this. We obviously grew up in Colorado where Hot Rise was the band. Um, nationally, they were huge, but they were kind of the local heroes that made it big from Colorado Absolutely. in the bluegrass world. 
And so it's really cool to get to yeah. have Tim on the podcast. I, I'm going to make sure to make sure he knows that it's because of him that uh, I am in this music. Don't world. put that on him. And it's going to be exciting. I'm so glad um, we're going to get to talk. I don't to know how Mr. we convinced him to do it. That's Mr. Cool. Timothy impressed. O'Brien. Oh, Brian. Yes. Let her take it away. Frank. Let her go, boys. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, boy. Make me away. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, uh, today we have a very special guest. I'm absolutely honored. This guy was a big part of us growing up, learning about bluegrass music. I don't even know if he knows how big of an influence he was on us even being in this industry at all. And then but after we started playing, we, yeah, his, his music away. was always with us. Uh, it never went away. And uh, we are so excited to have him with us. Uh, we got Tim O'Brien on the old interweb right now. He's up on our screen. Uh, hopefully you guys can see him. Tim, how are you doing out there? I'm doing really well, and it's good to see you guys across the screen, across the miles, across the wires, <laughs> the Ethernet. This is yeah, it's it, amazing. It is an amazing thing. Now we uh, we don't have to be in the same room, and I am sure Tim prefers it that way. <laughs> That's the only way we could get him to agree to this. There's a lot of that going around, you know. Songwriting partners they kind of prefer the Zoom. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to put out a snack tray. <laughs> no, yeah. If you have to go to the bathroom, yeah, you know where it is, and uh, <laughs> you know. And you don't have to worry about fighting somebody's cat to get in there. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> oh boy. Yes. This is uh, the way I wanted this podcast to go already. I can already, tell. Yeah. Just uh, what John said. I mean. Thank you so much for agreeing to the podcast. We have been, obviously when we were starting out, we grew up in Denver, Colorado, and Hot Rise was the thing that inspired Dad to start playing music, mm -hmm. and then that kind of snowballed into each one of us playing, and I remember the Rocky Mountain Festivals sitting on the front row watching Hot Rise play, and then as kids, obviously, the Red Knuckles thing was the highlight of the entire weekend. It was just such a, such a cool thing inspired us to start playing music but then like i said your every single project you have put out has lived in our uh van when we were touring down the road we were just listening to those things non-stop steal as much of your music as possible and try to learn it and it's just been that the entire length of our career has been influenced by tim o'brien so it's so cool to sit down and talk to you absolutely that's really awesome you know i know uh, how early it was because you guys were just uh you know grade school kids coming around to the gigs with your dad First was your dad by himself, and yep. then you start tank. You guys would be hanging along, and pretty soon you're playing playing shows with uh, with him. And you know, God, it's amazing what what links you've you know the distances you've traveled uh, musically and uh, geographically as a band, as a family. <laughs> and it's a great congratulations on your situation there in uh, Springfield. It's great that you got that situation going with uh, the shop and and all the podcasts and everything. It's great. It's made yeah. it a whole lot of fun, and uh, you know, it's it, now we get to get do stuff like talk to you, and and uh, it it makes it all worthwhile. I think. Yeah, so. well, you know, it pays to diversify. <laughs> yes, it does. And uh, over uh, COVID, that definitely stood out to us. And we had uh, had had a uh, home base that we could work out of. Yeah, I, I was curious. You're in mm -hmm. West Virginia now, right? No, I'm in. Uh, I live in Nashville. I've been in here. I've been in Nashville since uh, 1996. I, you know, I was uh, 
when I, I lived in Colorado for a long time from about 74 to, to 1996. And uh, I was, uh, I had sold a few songs in Nashville and I decided to move here to try to, you know, make good on that, maybe uh, support my kids and get them through college, which I, they got as far as they could get in college without, you know, with my help. <laughs> they didn't, one of them didn't finish, but they, but they've gotten their educations and they've gone on their way. But yes, it worked out to move to Nashville for, uh, just to sort of up the game a little bit as far as the business. Well, it was a big business for you. Well, yeah, I mean, um, I have a, a very few, uh, covers that have, that have been significant. I had a, uh, Kathy Matea covers, uh, before I moved to Nashville and, um, that opened up some collaborations that that continued to this day as well. And then uh, soon after I moved to Nashville, I had uh, Garth Brooks record a song that I wrote when you know soon after I moved to Nashville. It was like uh, it was uh, it proved that it was a good idea because I wrote a song with Daryl Scott in the basement of the Forerunner uh, Publishing Company, and uh, upstairs they were uh, listening to Garth Brooks demos and uh he heard us <laughs> garth actually heard us writing the song as he walked past the door and told the song plugger when they're done with that give that to me because i want to hear that so he recorded <laughs> a song that we wrote there that day and you know published it's wow. all kind of happened through the same uh company through the same business and his producer and the publisher are the same uh people and uh that kind of thing is what works out Nash now and again in nashville not always, but a few of those things are yeah, really make you know, kind of it kind of help you out, you know, if you can make a few connections like that. And it happened again, maybe uh, probably ten years later with the Dixie Chicks recording a song, and then uh, little mm -hmm. things, uh, you know, some bluegrass cuts help too, like uh, Nickel Creek doing uh, "When You Come Back Down" was important, and uh, yeah, but you know, it's uh, those things, those mailbox money things are contributing as well as uh, the mailbox money i get from my own recordings as well and you just kind of keep keep it all in uh try to keep it all going you know yeah like it's, you said diversifying a little bit yeah i mean you're smart to you guys are smart to get the shop going and you you reach out to the people that are in your area and uh you know i gotta travel to them but you guys can reach them right there and uh <laughs> and your your outreach through the podcast is really important so yeah, like uh, for me, being a being a sideman on on sessions and stuff has has helped also. Admit by you know living in Nashville, somebody like the Chieftains comes to town. They're probably not going to fly me in, but since I was there in the same zip code and could just drive over to the studio for the day, that hired me. And uh, you know, you, yeah. you get to know people and get some few things going on. And so uh, you know, I, I've continued to tour as a in a kind of folk and bluegrass world. At the same time, I'm selling a song now and again to other people and and doing sessions for other folks. So it kind of all worked I, out. I think that's one of the coolest things about Tim is this absolute – you talk about we keep bringing back Diversify, but there's been so much that you have done in this industry. Like you said, songwriting, playing. We've had you – know, uh, you know, where we first got to know you, but I think you were doing music before that out of West Virginia, but Hot Rise. Uh, then you were doing the Tim O'Brien band. Um, oh, boy. 
Yep, the uh, the old boys. Yep, that's and uh, and Tim and Molly. Yeah, the Tim and Molly stuff. That is to me some of the coolest project stuff. Uh, you and your sister, because there's uh, both extremely talented uh, musicians coming together to do stuff uh, from different sides of the world. I thought you know the music world, even though it's based out of the same thing. I thought it was always really cool. So yeah, well you know we. Uh you know what it's like to play music with your family, and you, you know you 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 can't avoid it. <laughs> if there's any music between you, it's just going to come out, and uh, it's really a good thing. You know, it's a great way to catch up with one another and stay stay close. Uh, but you know, with, with my sister and I, was always uh, her her uh, area of interest was a little different than mine. They were both we had to find the, the intersections, and they were. At folk music and some, you know, uh, modern songwriters, and uh, she's kind of more of a cabaret singer. You know, if she was in a perfect world, she'd have been in New York doing, you know, playing clubs at night, and I'm not sure, really? or maybe in musical theater. She really was good at that in, uh, in school. Yeah. But yeah, uh, you know, we loved doing that together, and uh, we we found uh, unique things to do, kind of. Aim for the country blues, kind of and gospely kind of things. Maybe was a good intersection, mm-hmm. but uh, yeah, she, she's a she's a world class, you know, singer. And uh, playing with her, singing with her was like you had to hold up your end of the bargain with her for sure. <laughs> I was gonna say when the two of you sing together, it was just great stuff. I remember was it Lost Little Children? The way you two sing that one was just one of my favorite tunes ever. So the question is, we always, uh, you know, there's sort of like the arguments musically of, you know, finding our way and we're close, you know, uh, all the time. Who had the upper hand when you two would get together and put together <laughs> your music? Was was it her say, your say, or wh- where did that battle happen? Because it has to happen somewhere, right? I'd say it was pretty, pretty equal uh, force, <laughs> you know, and it was a matter of consensus, you know, and uh, she had... Uh, She's an older sister, and she had sort of more perspective on some things than I did. And I had um, had done more in the studio and, I guess, performed a little wider outside of our home areas than she had. <laughs> but really, we were both kind of beginners when we were just starting. And, you know, it started in school, too. It started in, in high school, and uh, we just sing what we like to sing, really. And it, I guess we kind of kept yeah. with that that program we just kind of find songs we like to sing and uh it's funny when we got back together with our families with with her uh daughters and her husband rich and uh my two sons jackson and joel we made a record of a family band we called it o'brien party of seven and that was really hard to figure out what material to sing but uh at one point somebody Mm. just joked said, well, what about Roger Miller? Why don't we just do all Roger Miller songs? And it was just off the wall enough that everybody <laughs> agreed to it. You know, that would have been a harder thing to figure out the material for otherwise. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think I was reading, and I guess first question is, what made you make the leap all the way from West Virginia to Boulder, Colorado? And I think I read that when you got out there, you were doing some more swing music. Yeah, I was, um, I guess when I was in high school I was in the Boy Scouts and I loved going out to the west I went with the scouts to a place in New Mexico called uh, Piedmont and did most of 50 miles on a hike there backpacking and um so I always wanted to go back and I went back to another summer camp 
in Wyoming, I think the following year when I was 15. And then uh, when I was 17 and 18, I got a job working at that camp. So I would spend summers out in the, in the Rocky Mountains out in Wyoming. And uh, some of the people that were uh, counselors were planning to spend the winter in Jackson Hole in 1973 and four. And so I'd, I was uh, in school. I went back to college and I didn't like it and withdrew after a week uh, and uh, decided what to do. And I ended up going out there to be a ski bum. And I played in uh, bars and I couldn't afford to ski, but I, I brought a fiddle that I didn't know how to play. And by the end of that winter, I could sort of play with other people. <laughs> so that's kind of what I did there. And that's when I started started looking around for another place in the Rocky Mountain West to live. And I visited Boulder, Colorado. I had a friend there who worked in a music store called Folk Arts Music, which later became H.B. Woods Songs. You may remember mm -hmm. that. Yeah. That's, I do remember that, that store. And uh, so I worked at their store, uh, uh, moved in the fall of 73. Uh, is that right? The fall of 74 to Boulder. And I uh, worked in a music store there, taught lessons, and uh, played in the bluegrass band with uh, Rich, Richie uh, Mintz and Ned Alderman, who worked at the store. It was, it was Ned's store. Mm -hmm. and, um, and then I soon got with uh, Dan Sadowski and the Ophelia Swing Band, and we ended up making a record for the local label there, Biscuit City Records in Denver. And, uh, and I made a solo record for that same label. Yes, and, uh, which was a great album. Yeah, we made that made that record, and it was kind of. Uh, I'd been in the Ophelia Swing Band for a couple of years, two and a half years, and I left briefly. But the record came out um, in the winter of 1978, and that's when Hot Rise started. So uh, Pete Wernick called, said, "What are you doing?" And I'd, I'd moved to Minnesota briefly, and um, I got married, and. Uh, my wife actually wanted to move back to Colorado, so Pete said, why don't we start a group? And I said, that sounds good. And uh, we both had records that were about to come out in the, the beginning of 1978, and we'd helped each other on the records. So we for, formed Hot Rise to sort of promote those records through the, through the 1978, and then basically one thing led to another, and we kept doing it. And, uh, you know, 40-some years later, we were still playing shows. Yeah. Which is awesome. Um, we saw, we talked about this briefly at the beginning, but it really was uh, a a monumental part of us listening to music. There was a place called uh, the Monastery, I believe, which is oh, yeah. uh, you guys played. I think a, a weekly, if not monthly, show. I forget exactly, but yeah. uh, I remember going there quite often and uh, seeing you guys play there. Uh, you were what was I always thought was really cool about that Hot Rise as a band was you were a multi instrumentalist singing lead and it was something that was brought up to us by Pete because uh, we got to become friends with most of you guys you know throughout <laughs> our our career but the, what made Hot Rise so unique was you had this amazingly <clears throat> unique singer that nobody sounded like it, you know it, you had a style and then it, it transformed to the whole band. To this day, we were just pulling this up. Me, Jason, we're talking about it. We pulled up some Hot Rise stuff. There's no other band, I don't think, in the bluegrass realm that sounds like Hot Rise. It just It's hard to know, emulate, even. Yeah. It, it was a totally unique sound and yeah. uh, was tough for you guys, too, from what I remember hearing from stories at uh, some of the more Eastern festivals and stuff, too. 
Well, we were always uh, the group from Colorado, and, and uh, there were only a few of those that would travel outside of state. You know, they were before and after us, usually. Uh, I guess during our time, um, Front Range was another one that, that, that started traveling yeah. around. And to a lesser extent, the Bluegrass Patriots traveled around a good bit outside of the state. But Hot Rise was, uh, we followed uh, Monroe Doctrine, and Charles Sautel, our guitarist, had been in Monroe Doctrine, and they were they were a nationally touring group, and they, uh, they uh, you know, made recordings and stuff. And so getting with Charles and getting with Pete, who had also toured around the country with uh, Country Gazette, or Country Gentleman, not, neither, neither one, Country Cooking, Country Cooking, got to get your country <laughs> yeah, straight there. Yeah, those country bands. Uh, <laughs> having those guys is uh, kind of uh, slightly older and a little more experienced was gold. And, uh, yeah, we started touring. It just, uh, we were always the sort of misfits. We were east of the uh, Mississippi. We were the progressive bluegrass band. West of the Mississippi, yeah. we were kind of like the traditional band. Until yeah. all the way, until we got to California, and then we were kind of suspect again. Uh, <laughs> you know, electric bass, and our hair was longer than it should have been, I guess, for you know, a traditional pedal bluegrass. pedal on a banjo. Yeah, and uh, well, yeah, we had the had the phase shifter banjo and stuff, but you know, we we wore suits to kind of tie us to the uh, old Flat and Scruggs and Bill Monroe and the Bluegrass Boys, kind of dressing up for the show thing. You know, kind of mm-hmm. kind of tie us to that world and we sang around one mic for that reason. And uh, we always had a, a a a good portion of the material was stuff that the audience a bluegrass audience would have have heard before you know we put in a stanley brothers song or flat and scruggs thing in there maybe a folk song that they'd heard before in a different way and then our original songs hopefully fit in with that so it was kind of you know we were making it up uh uh but you know the front range of colorado was it it lent itself to experimentation there was um strong audience for any kind of music you know they were open-minded and uh we didn't really need to uh break them in they were ready for us you know it was uh yeah i don't know we fell on a fell on the fallow ground there i think was a good place for a band to start well it's funny because you brought up that weird demographic uh across the u.s that still existed when we were touring so you know we followed you yeah. Uh, you know, in the late 90s or mid 90s, I guess, is when we really started touring heavily. And it was almost exactly that same thing. When you got to the east side, all of a sudden we were this really crazy progressive uh, Colorado band. And, yeah. uh, you know, the, that that Midwest was like, OK, we can kind of sort of get get into this, especially in Colorado. And then, like you said, for some reason, you get to California and somehow you got to be this really progressive band again. And <laughs> I didn't understand that because, you know, to us, we thought we were a, a more than traditional band. Well, after we moved out of Colorado into Missouri, there seemed to be a shift in Colorado to where the music was more contemporary. Uh, and now it became in the late or early 2000s, mid 2000s, it became super traditional in Colorado. And we were unaccepted in Colorado because we were too <laughs> modern. And it was a weird yeah. shift that I felt because we had these bands. Uh, what was that? Open Road uh, band? Uh, I think, yeah. yeah. Lonesome Road, one of those guys. They, they started kind of kicked off that traditional thing. So, so it was either old timey or extremely traditional all around one mic with, you know. All flat and scrugs, and and we were not as good as at tying it in as you were. Well, we just kind of um, 
we had the the show business uh, factor with the Red Knuckles and the Trailblazers. It sort of gave us something to go on that was it was independent of any of that. You know, it's kind of like a, yeah an entertainment factor, which you know it was nice for be able to people to sort of have a handle to carry the music around with like a name of the kind of music it was and bluegrass was close enough and uh <laughs> we uh we emphasized that we were playing some other kind of music besides bluegrass and uh the, what we didn't say was we were playing other than traditional bluegrass when we had our bluegrass instruments but we were also <laughs> playing western swing or whatever it was honky-tonk music with with other instruments and uh, you know kind of setting a, a different sound up and I don't know. It's just a sleight of hand. Uh, we're just doing what we sure. like to do. Yeah. You know, we we did what we like to do, yes. and we tried to not to take ourselves too seriously. We tried to take the music seriously, but not ourselves seriously, and that yeah. kind of lent itself to some kind of uh, help for the audience. And I think yeah. they get you know people identified with uh, the dress up, you know, alter ego, alternate uh, personality thing with red knuckles and the trailblazers. And I think people identified with that when they come to the show and wear sunglasses during the Trailblazers part of the show. And maybe they would put a tie on during the Hot Rise part of the show. <laughs> that's, that's something I've always wondered. And you guys, it really was a huge leap. How did it come about? Or, you know, What was the brainstorming session where we decided you're going to do this swing, Western swing band, alter ego thing? So the first question is, you know, how did that kind of, come about like where was that conversation and then what was it like trying to sell that to festivals to say all right we need this double double set we're going to close out the night just about every night and do these two acts and on top of that you guys were the best marketers ever as far as merchandising <laughs> with the, the sunglasses the fly swatters we had all that stuff from from hot rise and red knuckles but yeah it's, it's such a groundbreaking idea to do that alter ego in a bluegrass world how did that even come about well, it, it was uh, it, it, highly indirect. It was uh, not um, consciously planned at all. It was like, it was just self-preservation that if we played a bar, which was where we were primarily going to play for the first year or two, um, we wanted to change up the music so that we could re more people could relate to it. So, you know, playing a Hank Williams song uh, was broadening out the bluegrass repertoire a little bit for people that and it maybe helped bring more people in and maybe if they were inclined to dance they would dance to that kind of music and uh you know people that were selling alcohol wanted to see people up dancing if you could do it Absolutely. and maybe that you know maybe maybe that helped uh just just singing that music helped sell alcohol i don't know but it also <laughs> it just helped uh it helped draw the audience in. The people that liked old kinds, old country, were the same kind of people that liked old bluegrass. And uh, this was a way of having a little bit of fun. It, it, we started it just by playing the music, uh, and we didn't change clothes or anything. And after we had the, a repertoire together, after a couple of years, we were doing a formal concert for Swallow Hill Music Association. It was probably, probably still Denver Folklore Center in those days. Um, and I think we played at uh, Denver City Park at one of the auditoriums there. And it was a nice formal concert. So we decided to do a costume change in the middle of the show. And that was the first time we'd done that. And we 
for the, whatever reason, we called ourselves Red Knuckles and the Trailblazers that night. It, we had all kind of names that we had over the years. That we would just, you know, here we would say, you know, we're going to switch instruments and be another band for a minute. And maybe we'd say, here's Ben Steele and his bare hands or whatever. <laughs> uh, and, uh, but that, that particular night, we were Red Knuckles and the Trailblazers. And with the costume change, it sort of created a different thing. And uh, that became the name of the band. And uh, maybe three or four months later, we did an interview for a, a radio station in Louisville, Kentucky, and the interviewer wanted to interview Hot Rise, but she really wanted to interview Red Knuckles and the Trailblazers. She wanted to know <laughs> our backstory. So we made up a bunch of stuff during this interview, and that became our story. And we, at the end of that interview, we all looked at each other and says, yeah, we said, well, now we know where we're from, don't we? Now we need to remember that. Write this down, because we're going to have to say the same thing again next time. When you, when you lie, you need, to, you need to get your lies straight, you know. What was it, Wyoming, Montana you're from? Yes. Yeah, we were from right on the border of Wyoming and Montana. Wyoming, Montana. Yeah. Such good stuff. And then just over time, did the actual deeper characters develop just from you guys would do something one night and it would stick and then pretty soon you got Waldo Auto. Yeah, it's yeah. Waldo uh he kind of formed his character was a little bit like Ralph Cramden on the Honeymooners <laughs> and a little bit like cousin Jody on uh Lonzo and Oscar show. <laughs> he did the steel guitar kind of physical comedy with the steel guitar like he did. Mm-hmm. And then he talked kind of like Ralph like uh uh Art Carney's character. <laughs> I like it. And, uh, you know, Slade's character was, uh, Slade, Charles was not a very talkative guy on stage. <laughs> and he used to just have answer yes or no questions on stage, and then he got to where he didn't talk at all on stage. So that became his thing. He was always dressed in black. He was mysterious. The, 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 the personalities were kind of an outgrowth of our normal personalities, except that we sort of put parts of our personality to one side for one sure. personality and another part for the other. And uh, <clears throat> I remember we were at a club in Dallas, Poor Richards is called, and we were doing a sound check with the Trailblazers and Charles started playing White Rabbits by Jefferson Airplane on his bass. He started going dun 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 and I started singing, one pill makes you taller, one pill makes you small. And he said, oh, that's it. Red Knuckles remembers the trail, or Red Knuckles remembers the 60s. Yes. And that was the beginning of that. And uh, that, that became like, skit. that became a, a real moneymaker for us, you know. <laughs> yes. You can create a monster. You just figure out things that work on stage. And then pretty soon you're, you're, you're left with this bag of stuff that just sort of happened randomly. So the funny thing about Red Remembers the 60s was, I know for all three of us, that was uh, that was our introduction to most of that music right there. <laughs> and for many, many years, that was, once I would actually hear the actual cuts of those, I'd be like, dude, that's what that song was supposed to be like. Yeah. One, one felt a little different. <laughs> yeah, it came out of left field, and... Uh, we would have uh, Eddie Stubbs. We, have, we would have uh, various various fiddle players, and that were in the same, you know, were on the on the same festival as us. A guest as as uh, as Elmo Otto, uh, Waldo's yeah. brother Elmo. So Eddie Stubbs 
he was exactly like that. He he played that gag with us. The Red remembers the sixties. He said, "I don't know any of those songs because he never. <laughs> he just missed all that." <laughs> and it was great because uh, we take these people for along for the ride and just see what happened with them. You know, put them in a situation. You put a hat and a you know put them in sunglasses and a cowboy hat and see what they do. <laughs> and you it's had so a, many guests doing that. You yeah. had Eddie Eddie Stubbs. You were saying I I saw Stuart Duncan once do it. I yeah. saw uh, Sam Bush. <clears throat> I've seen uh, so many variations of that. There was uh, one evening, and I swear, as a kid, you guys had me really tricked because I wasn't sure if you guys were really the same people or not. Because one <laughs> night you guys stayed on stage, but another Red Knuckles in the Trailblazers came out behind you. That was a rarity, obviously, but that was a good trick when we could pull it off. Uh, <laughs> one time we were on stage and in a festival in California and uh, <laughs> all our you know we had our hats and our our shirts back there we just put these shirts over on over top of our white shirt and tie that we were wearing with our suits and leave the suit coat off and then we you know tuck our pants into our boots put on a hat and sunglasses go and we'd be red knuckles well we were on stage and uh, Hot Rise was playing and I don't think I mean it was not we would do about 40 minutes if we had an hour show we'd do about 30 minutes and then Red Knuckles would play for 15 and then we'd finish out as Hot Rise. Well, about 15 minutes into the show, 15 minutes before we normally would switch, here comes Red Knuckles and the Trailblazers out from behind the stage and it was all the National Bluegrass <laughs> Band. They had just dressed up like us. They saw the clothes there and they thought, you know, this is too good of an opportunity. So they came out and they started grabbing our instruments and hey, we we're going, hey, wait a minute, you guys are a little early. <laughs> That's pretty good. It's kind of a, you know, that was a good thing. You, you try to get other people involved in it too when you could to to uh, sit in and. It, well, it was it was so uh, easily <clears throat> the music was so easily transferable. Like you said, it was music that those a lot of the fans were already into. And yeah. weren't getting that opportunity. They spent a whole weekend listening to bluegrass bands. And, you know, especially a lot of the times it would be the same songs over and over, right. uh, different bands. And all of a sudden you brought in something that they grew up with that they didn't expect necessarily. Well, it started to be that they did expect, but uh, wasn't you know, necessarily what they came there for. And, uh, and it just was so easily encompassing and get and them on so stage. Good. You guys played it so yeah. well. Well, we tried to, we tried to do the, do justice to the music and then everything else was up for grabs it's just uh it got to be a little bit too you know it it was a monster it was like uh <laughs> you couldn't you couldn't control it it was like uh what's more important the song or this gag that you have and you tried to keep it even as much as we could but yeah it was uh it became a, a the real calling card and uh it it was uh it was funny a couple times there were festivals that didn't want us to do it because they didn't like they didn't want electric music at their festival. Yeah. One was Doyle Lawson's festival the first time we played it and the promoter said, "Well, you know, I really like I really love the Trailblazers and we can he said I just can't have that at my festival." And it, we figured it out later. He didn't really know what the Trailblazers did. He just knew we played electric mm -hmm. guitar, electric bass and mm -hmm. had electric <laughs> had electric steel and that was enough to to give uh, him the it made him afraid. He was afraid of what would happen. And then, of course, we didn't do it. We didn't do it. And the, the next year they booked us and said, well, we're really sorry. We should have had you play Red Knuckles and the Trailblazers because <laughs> we got a lot of requests for it. Yeah. 
So, I mean, it, was, it became, it was, the promoters didn't really, weren't catching on in the beginning. And then they realized this is part of their appeal, and this is why they're selling tickets. And that's yeah. that became part of you know. It was just we had to do it. It was it was uh, it was a requirement. Well, you guys were part of an era that was very interesting, where electric uh, instruments, which still sort of exists uh, in the bluegrass realm, was really starting to get a lot of grief. I mean, even just an electric bass, there were a lot of bands that had it. But there was like a major pushback against any electric, which is what made Red Knuckles so interesting to me because I was starting to see that as a younger person playing music. I'm seeing this band that is able to get away with when I know there's festivals out there. They're saying no electric bass, nothing plugged in, nothing, you know, allowed. And that that was a real thing. And I know a lot of younger Still musicians. Here in Missouri, a few festivals. <laughs> there's a few of them. There's a lot of young musicians in the bluegrass world that are now a majority of them are now plugging in with pickups and all that. And it's funny to me because I remember this era, which you guys were definitely part of, that was like, no, absolutely no at all. Yeah, well, we were, we weren't, uh, didn't have the big backlash like Newgrass Revival, for instance. They played music that was progressive music. They did, you know, bluegrass related stuff for sure, but their music went farther out on a limb than we did. And, People like David Griswold's uh, quintet, that kind of thing, was was definitely on the side uh, outside of the bluegrass world. And um, but we played music that was more inside the line, you know. And uh, it was just uh, we we wanted to play traditional music, but we just didn't know how. I mean, we didn't really know how to be a pl- traditional bluegrass band from Colorado. It was just kind of it didn't make sense, you know. None of us really grew up singing in church or any of that stuff no none of our daddies were fiddlers or banjo players you know it's kind of we were just uh, more coming at it from a folk music side of things i think that might be why it worked out so well like I, personally as a mandolin player i've been such a fan of your playing because it is so unique and different like you it didn't sound like you went to the the school that i think most musicians do where they they learn bill and licks and they learn Doyle Lawson licks and a lot of stuff. You kind of have your own feel to it. It's got this real bounce and looseness, and and it's kind of like a real bouncy sort of soloing. And it's it always appealed to me as he is absolutely that's Tim. Like John said about your singing, it's all so unique. It wasn't like you were trying to emulate anybody else. It was just what what your interpretation of the instruments were. Yeah, well, you know, I I just listened to what I listened to. I was inter- always interested in. Um the British invasion stuff when I, when I was starting to play music, uh, you know, the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and that kind of thing. And then the, my parents' music, I liked their jazz, that they, big band jazz that they listened to when they would listen to music and that kind of music they would sing in the car, you know? And, uh, and then I got into other kinds of folk music and the blues and there's always some kind like somebody like Doc Watson. Once you get into him, you realize he's playing, old blues he's playing old swing he's playing old elvis stuff he's playing contemporary songwriters and he's doing the old mountain ballads and i kind of i loved all of that and so luckily somebody like like him provided a template for a group like hot rise to sort of find repertoire that we could all believe in you know that wasn't too weird for us and i remember nick would say you know i we went we liked uh, we do the gospel songs, but we do the guilt-free kind of gospel songs. We don't, have, you know, no no blood in it. Just kind of we're just going to sing about how good it is to be together, as opposed to uh, 
the the sad sides of things. Or you know, he. But like I say, we other groups broke in for us, like Doc Watson, Country Gentleman, Newgrass Revival. If we'd have been the first group with an electric bass, we would have had a harder time. But you had uh, Jim and Jesse and the Virginia Boys and the Osborne Brothers using electric bass, and so we were kind of got we could sort of just get in the door that yeah. way. I think it also came down to kind of how you guys presented the music too. Yeah. Like you talked about, you know, the suits and the one mic. You guys were one of the first in that, you know, that era doing the one mic thing around, you know, working together on that. And even the way you presented Red Knuckles, it was all about a presentation. It kind of it it snuck the music in there and everybody was so accepting of, of a more yeah. modern Yeah, there's music. a little bit of a little bit of a th- uh, theatrical showbiz thing to it. And uh we definitely love the look of of a group moving around the one microphone to sing, and that that made it look more interesting, you know, than um, just watching guys standing at their sticks microphone stands with sticks in front of them. Mm-hmm. Well, you guys had also a elevated sound system too, because you're using like like right now you said earlier before we started this, you've got the old Hot Rise uh, four fourteen, which yeah. was not a normal stage mic for most bluegrass <laughs> bands. I don't know if you're aware of that. Yeah, no, we were uh, <laughs> we were trying to up our game. Uh, our guitarist Charles Sattel was uh, sound engineer, and um, mm-hmm. he knew about recordings. Uh, technology as well as just live production. He had had a sound system uh, that was, they did sound for Walnut Valley Festival, for instance, um, before, in, in, bet- in between the time Charles was in Monroe Doctrine and when hot, before Hot Rise started, he had a sound company with David Wilson and uh, Sawtell Wilson Company did festivals around the state and they did some, I know they did some of the Walnut Valley Festivals in Winfield, Kansas. So he was he was saying, you know, we need a microphone that will pick up the three of us singing better. And so we invested in this expensive for the time, expensive microphone, the AKG 414. And and that became what we used. You know, nowadays it's become more common and uh, people have gone back to that thing. But they're also, you know, they're also using in-ear monitors and stuff nowadays. And yeah. Uh, technology changes everything. It kind of goes in waves, you know. We were kind we of also, a reaction to the, to a certain, uh, you know, everybody mic'd up all the time and standing in their place. We were a reaction to that, and we kind yeah. of started a little bit of something that went went up to a point, and then it kind of reacted again. You guys were also one of the bands uh, for that I remember one of the first bands, and I know there's probably other ones that were before you, that also carried your own sound guy. Frank uh, was a very impressive sound guy. He did sound for us a few times out yeah. in Colorado. And uh, I always thought, I mean, like I said, it was just upping the game uh, more so than a lot of bands were doing. I mean, it's just showing up and just, hey, we're here, we're going to play on this stage. That wasn't what Hot Rise was about. Uh, you guys had your own gear. You knew what the, was needed to be done, and you came in and did it. <laughs> yeah, there is a a certain amount of control that you get by by uh, ex- you know investing that way it it kept us from being caught unaware sometimes at places where the the you know the situation was less than optimal we had our own gear and uh you know we went from that from from using it part of the time to using it all the time to 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 back to where we didn't bring a pa system around because things changed we started playing nicer venues and that kind of thing. And, but having your own sound guy, that was like uh, instead of hiring a fifth 
musician, we hired a sound guy that could help us not only with the sound, but also with the merge and with driving. And that really was, uh, that was where we needed help more than we needed another musician on stage. And, that's pretty uh, awesome. So that's kind of, uh, that's a lesson that uh, is a hard one to learn, but it's, <laughs> you know, it makes sense to have a sound guy if you can, if you just budgeted it in and you just plan on doing it, you, you learn how to live with that expense real fast. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Any musician that's ever experienced a really bad sound day realizes how much that affects your performance, how much you're able to in, uh, interact with the audience because you're so distracted by what's going on, what's going wrong. Yeah. Even, even if you, you can have some bad days with that guy, with your own guy there, even, <laughs> but at least, you know, he, he was there to try on your behalf instead of, you know, <laughs> he wasn't there, you know, you, you might not know if you ever could have done a better gig, you know? So yeah, it definitely, uh, it was about, it was about survival, you know, and about, uh, trying to, that was traveling with a bus is another thing. It's like, it it meant we could travel longer distances and bring more gear with us, more merch, and uh, that proved to be uh, a good decision. Jeremy, quick, give me a situation where somebody needs an instrument fast. Um, there is a band that's performing. You want to get backstage. You don't know how to get backstage, but you're a huge fan. So you grab a guitar, you walk backstage, and say, "Hey, I got to get this to the lead singer. He needs it now." All right, John, give me a situation quickly where they can get that guitar. Well, here's the deal. You guys can go to theacousticshop.com and get on there. You can search for guitars. You can check by brand. You can check by style. All those different things. Order it. It will be shipped that day, if not the very next day. Now, give me a situation where they need a banjo. Uh, There's no need for a banjo. Everybody knows nobody needs a banjo. But if you did need a banjo, you go to theacousticshop.com. Like John said, check us out. And uh, thanks for supporting the podcast. I can't think of a reason. Nobody has a reason for a banjo. I guess we've talked at length about Hot Rise and Red Knuckles because that (laughs) was such an influence on us. But also you, uh, when you start doing some of the solo stuff or even with other uh, groups that you put together, you're so diverse in the style of music you bring. I mean, the Red on Blonde album where you just cover all the Bob Dylan tunes, Uh, one of my my favorite, just to, to have a whole project that's just... Tim O'Brien's take on on Bob Dylan, and then the the, uh, the Oh Boy Oh Boy album, also one of my favorites. But there, there, those two projects alone are so different and diverse. And then when you did stuff with Molly, where it was more with some of that Celtic influence in the Crossing, like all that stuff is coming in so uh, so many different directions. Is that just part of you to keep from being bored that you you want to do something a little different? And it's not always another Tim O'Brien album. It's just something almost completely different from the last one <clears throat> well i mean uh i feel like they i need to do anything i can to keep people coming back to the show and to, to you know go into the record store uh if i can give them something to be more if it's interesting to me uh i have to ask if it's going to be of interest to other people and so something like that like doing all bob dylan songs on a in a bluegrass way that just the once the idea came up, it seemed like a no-brainer. It was just like, oh, there's so many great songs, and there's so many songs that people already know, but there's so many that they don't know. And with a combination of that, and with uh, the the legend, uh, there's so much context that you get when you sort of do Bob Dylan songs. Uh, it brings you into a whole other realm in music because he's associated with. 
a certain time and place and uh, a kind of writing is not often heard in bluegrass and uh, and yet so much of it works because his his influences on the music were very much traditional music uh, the, the same stuff that bluegrass comes out of you know the old Appalachian stuff and blues and uh, British Isles ballads and uh, it was so easy to do and uh, I just I could tell singing something like uh, Maggie's farm playing a fiddle on it I was realized you know this is mm-hmm. not this is this is is Bob Dylan's music but it's also bluegrass music and this is a good thing it's a little, I think it, I just could trust it that it would work subterranean blues was a little bit harder probably <laughs> yeah maybe so uh, so yeah that one's but you know uh, it worked if, if you have uh, somebody like Mark Schatz who does all that hand bone percussion that was a great way to do that just, uh, you know, I'll try to find different ways to do things. But like I say, uh, I've mostly followed my nose through this stuff and try to find something that interests me. And you kind of, uh, I'm, you know, probably suffer from atten- attention deficit syndrome, you know. Uh, and so playing different instruments is part of that sort of when I get bored with one, I pick up another one. If I get <laughs> bored with one kind of music, I look another direction. But. Sure. Uh, that's one reason that I, you know, once I left the Hot Rise, I've just made all the records. Rather than form a new group, I just, well, I'll be Tim O'Brien, and at least that won't change. The music will change, <laughs> but at least the, at least the, the guy singing it he'll, will have the same name. Yes. <laughs> well, I think what is also kind of, again, this is our uh, bringing it back again to what it did with, with us. Uh, you're talking about the Dylan stuff. I had a very, very limited uh, vocabulary of, of listening to Bob Dylan. And what you did by bringing that, not only was you were saying it's stuff that some people were familiar with, different style, but this was my introduction to Bob Dylan. I don't think I would have, with our limited catalog of, you know, I was listening, you got to realize I'm the kid of the mid-90s, uh, or eight, you know, listening to the pop stuff that was going on then, and rock stuff I heard, you know, school, and then I've also got this other side of me that's growing up listening to, to traditional bluegrass, and, yeah. you know, this other realm. That was not a world that I, you know, it. Red Knuckles was another one that started our our love of old country music. I had no, I, I didn't listen to Webb Pierce. I don't know I'd have brought that out of anywhere. Uh, but all of a sudden, I've got this influence of this music that was forced into the world that I already did sort of understand. And now I'm like, all right, let's go down this road for a while. And I learned so much by way of that. So again, thank you for so much for that. Tim O'Brien is our gateway drug (laughs) (laughs) genres. Yeah. I led led a lot of people astray. So, so, you know, uh, that, um, that, that whole bag of tricks, you know, having the, having access to all those Bob Dylan's songs is just through my association with Charles Sautel. He had all the records. I had some of them. And I was aware of, you know, Dylan's kind of like Bill Monroe in that he's a little hard to, uh, it's a little strong spice at first. It's something that you might not understand. And uh, you have to have somebody sort of hold your hand and guide guide you through it. I mean, I was definitely bitten by the bug before I ever met Charles, but I did. I wasn't a fanatic like he was. Charles just followed him from the from the get go, and so we we went through all the records one day, a couple of days. I went to his house and 
I said, I'm looking for, you know, the songs that I can cut in a bluegrass way. And we went through a lot of, you know, listened to tracks over and over, just kept spinning the LPs until we came up with a big list. And Charles is really helpful. So it was like just an outgrowth of what what the guys at Hot Rise listened to. You know, and it was what my sister listened to, what what uh, Pete Wernick. Pete Wernick was more into the Beach Boys than into Dylan and more into the Beach Boys than he is into uh, the Beatles, for instance. But we all listen to all that stuff. But then we're also listening to, you know, old blues, Freddie King and B.B. King, anybody named King or uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, and then I started listening to a lot of old time music and I uh, got into Celtic music and stuff. So it's kind of. It just kind of kept growing, and yeah, uh, very cool. But uh, you, you know, you get with people that, like the people that we associate with, really have a lot to do with what kind of what our music sounds like. And that that little group of people with uh, Charles and uh, Pete and Nick was really formative. And I have to say, my sister's musical tastes were formative as well. And then as I went along, you know, having learned about Webb Pierce and I mean, I knew about Hank Williams and Bob Wills, but I didn't really know about Webb Pierce, and I didn't know about uh, Lefty for Sale so much. I learned about that through Hot Rise, and definitely yeah. learned more about bluegrass. And it's just kind of the body of, you know, it's a big field. There's a lot of stuff to check out out there. There's a lot more music that's gone before you than has than has been making right now. Yeah, uh, yeah. Know, that's absolutely lot, true. And so it's uh, you know, there's a lot to, lot to survey, a lot to learn from out there. Right now, we've been kind of talking Tim O'Brien, the performer, but we'd be That's what remiss not to, to not to talk about Tim O'Brien, the songwriter. Like your songwriting is some of my favorite stuff. I remember "Walk the Way the Wind Blows" was just we we all tried to play that in our band numerous times. Uh, it takes time to learn to let them go. That was another one we we just wow. gravitated towards. Beautiful song you wrote. How do you remember your first song that you wrote and how you kind of got brave and became such a talented songwriter? Was it just first time out of the book you wrote a hit or well uh i'd wrote songs um and didn't really think much about it when i was teenager and uh you know i was in a crappy sort of garage rock kind of band that played we probably could play a half hour of music (laughs) and uh but you know i tried to write songs for that and maybe we performed one or two and uh but it wasn't until I got with Hot Rise that uh, it looked like we were going to make some recordings and um, and go tour because those other guys had done it. And uh, so writing songs became a more, it was much more on the front burner from that time on. And the idea that uh, if you had songs that were your own, then people would hire you to sing them as opposed to someone else, you know. Uh, so that was the aim is to to put a certain amount of original presence on those early records and uh it it worked out because um we had a place to sing them you know before that i didn't really have an outlet but because we had this uh possibility looming we we uh applied ourselves to it we wrote songs together while we were traveling around in the car we would we had a cadillac uh sedan deville and we pulled a trailer behind us with the PA system in and stuff. And so we would uh, listen to the tapes that we made, the comp tapes that we made as we drove along, and then we would try to write new songs. So you can see it all kind of had a lot of t- had a lot of un, uh, 
unplanned free time where one guy just had to drive a car. <laughs> you know, four of us were kind of talking about music and we're kind of forming our opinions and listening to music. And then we're actually writing music. So, uh, you know, we got songs that we like to sing. So we had faith enough to record them. And then our first record was received very well. And uh, luckily there was a circuit of uh, bluegrass radio programs that we could we could take advantage of and it was the NPR was a new thing um, each local station had their own bluegrass hour or two a week and uh, bluegrass unlimited was helpful in finding us other outlets for radio so those those plus the venues that people played around the country kind of linked us to that community and uh but writing songs was always uh, mysterious, and it continues to be mysterious. Mm. And it's, uh, but what's not mysterious is the the subject matter is uh, you don't have to have anything radically different. It's you're mostly just talking about every people's everyday lives and what they go through. And if you can find a little melodic or vocal, like a lyrical hook uh, that you can make into a melody then you can probably write a song and uh some of them will really get in, inside people's heads you know and uh yeah pete pete and nick were good good for they wrote some great songs at hot rise you know they were the main writers on maybe we helped each other finish songs but it wasn't just me it was uh all three of us charles was not a songwriter but he was really good at judging a song and uh, he would give us ideas for songs. Mm. Uh, so, you know, it, it was, uh, we were kind of going to school together and learning how to do this. So writing songs was part of the school, part of the curriculum. But I just kept doing it. And I had some uh, success during the Hot Rise time when Kathy Matea recorded two of my songs. And so that meant I was making money outside of the band, which that's what breaks bands up, uh, <laughs> you know. <laughs> That's, uh, that broke up the the police when Sting started making all the money, <laughs> and uh, but I was ready to move on to something as well, and uh, I I wanted to expand the you know my horizons a little bit. So uh, having Kathy record a couple songs was was kind of an indication that I could maybe do this again, and uh, that prompted a move to Nashville, which which worked out really well. Yeah, I'd say. So did Kathy uh, hear these as Hot Rise cuts or were these sent to her as separate demos or how did that come about? Well, Kathy knew we had met before at actually at a festival in Nashville called Summer Lights. Uh, we played uh, we played on the same afternoon at the Summer Lights Festival and met each other. And I knew she was from West Virginia and she knew I was from uh, West Virginia. So we. It turned out our our agents uh, worked in the same office, and they were they actually shared an office. So I went and one day, and I got some of her demo recordings. Uh, I guess I got some of her releases as demos, you know, as uh, promo copies. And she did the same. And uh, and then about six or eight months later, we were on Mountain Stage together. My sister Molly and I were booked, and then Kathy Mateo was booked, and we ended up collaborating on the show on mountain stage i sang on some of her stuff and she sang on some of ours and uh then when she got the she got demos of uh 
Walk the Way the Wind Blows and um, Untold Stories, she knew my name. They weren't sung. Kathy Kiavala sang the demo to Walk the Way the Wind Blows that uh, she got. And they made a real sort of, uh, sort of, uh, what would you call it, uh, neutral kind of sounding demo. It had drums and maybe, you know, keyboard and I don't think there was a steel guitar, but it sounded a little more country radio oriented than, than the Hot Rise version. Mm-hmm. But when she heard it, she liked the song, but when she looked on who wrote it, she, she liked maybe it might have helped her like it a little more. You know, and that, that really helps. That really helps. It's like you sure. make these kind of contacts with people. And uh, so she got it, but she knew the name. And uh, I think the next one I got sent her untold stories, it was probably my sister and I singing it, but me playing a guitar part on it. More like, and it, was, it would have been more like what she ended up cutting. But yeah, those are, Kathy's, Kathy was, that was the beginning of, of a different side of the career. And that, that enabled me to sort of be independent of the bluegrass market a little bit. I was kind of working more in the folk music and singer-songwriter world. I kind of always have one foot in each of those worlds. And it kind of yeah. somehow works out. But, you know, writing songs has been become maybe a more important thing than anything because that's really where it starts is the material. You know, I uh, I keep looking through the old material and I keep finding songs that I have never sang that exist, pre-exist, you know, written by earlier songwriters or traditional music. You don't even know who wrote it. Um, But I'm also kind of finding that I. I'm my own best source. You know, if I can come up with an idea, uh, something that I want to sing about, then I'm just, that's just as good as anything for me, especially as the I'm reputation sure. has grown. You know, I got all these records with a lot of original songs. It's they're looking for more. So it's yeah. become my, my main game is to try to up my writing game and get better at that and keep coming up with new songs. I imagine that's going to be hard to do. <laughs> well, it is hard to do. And, uh, it's, you know, it's funny. Uh, you kind of kind of write in a similar way as you go on. You just hopefully you get deeper at it and a little better at it. Um, there, are, a lot of the songs sound like the earlier songs, but they're a little better, I think. Anyway, <laughs> I, I keep trying to come up with something new, and uh, and co-writing is helpful that way. But uh, yeah. writing by myself is still a big big part of it. But I have to say, writing with other people opens my mind up to other ideas. And um, most recently, been writing a lot with my wife Jan, and she, yeah, she, she and I, you know, we come up on ideas, and it may take us a couple months to get around to fleshing out an idea and actually writing the song, but we'll have an idea. We'll we'll get together, and uh, that helps. When we we write the song together, and then we we learn it together, uh, how to play it on our instruments, and then we know how to sing it when we get to the studio. It kind of. This kind of all starts from the ground up that way. Well, that's cool that you have somebody to, to be able to bounce stuff around on a yeah. regular basis and also yeah. have it rehearsed, you know, before yeah. it even goes yeah, anywhere just, else. Yeah, it just kind of happens uh, naturally without a lot of uh, talking about it. But then um, in most recent times, we've been writing a lot with Tom Paxton, who's a great, uh, venerable writer from the 60s, you know, with a folk. Mm-hmm folks the folk revival in the early 60s he was there in greenwich village and um awesome you see his template in uh in that movie uh 
Ilan Davis or you what's that name uh Lewin uh, Davis that, wasn't it Lewin oh, Davis yeah inside Lewin Davis inside Lewin Davis his character is the guy in uh in the army uniform <laughs> well I like him a lot then <laughs> he's uh, an old friend and and uh because of the pandemic he started writing with people on zoom and we finally got together and started doing that and uh he hasn't looked back it's it's opened up all mm-hmm. the possibilities people he always wanted to write with and that we've been doing it on a regular basis and Jan and I and Tom will sit down and in an hour we have a song and we like them all it's kind of bizarre I don't That's understand awesome. this awesome. songwriting game it's like uh, <laughs> I, I go for year, months and months where I can't write anything and then I'll write four or five in a couple months and so it it's just awesome. uh, any way you can get to it, I think, is is, is helpful. You had, uh, and you correct me on this, and this may not make the podcast. I don't know. We'll see. Um, you had a album that was recorded for a major label and then did not get released. Is this correct? That's right. That material wasn't allowed to be released for a time period. Have you got... I thought Sugar Hill then put it back uh, out. I don't know. That's what I was going to ask. Well, uh, I, you know, I was... I signed a contract with RCA in uh, probably early 1990. I guess it was probably spring of 1990. And uh, by the fall of 1991, it was all recorded. And there was a change up in the administration at RCA. And basically that record got put on the shelf. And uh, the management I had at the time was Bob Titley, who's Kathy Mateo's manager also. And he tried to pitch the same tape around to other record labels, and they didn't bite. So uh, I got a lawyer to cut a deal where I had to pay RCA if I sold above a certain amount of copies of of these songs. I got the rights to record them again with what's called an override agreement. And uh, I would either I would wait seven years to re-record the songs of another label, or I could cut them in on my my uh, giant profits, and so I offered to <laughs> cut them in on my giant profits, which pro- proved never to show up. And so, <laughs> so the the record that came out uh, that covered that that RCA thing was called Odd Man In. So that was the first wow. solo record on uh, Sugar Hill, and uh, all those songs. Pr- yeah, pretty much all those songs I'd recorded for RCA, and about half of them might have made the cut if they'd ever put it out. They had me record a lot of songs and they had me record songs by other artists, uh, other writers, and we picked 10 songs to come out and probably five of them are on Odd Man In. So, Mm. um, yeah, they signed me on the basis of those original songs, but then they didn't really, they didn't feel like they could sell them on country radio, so they had me record a bunch of other stuff. I got sort of farther away from what I wanted to do with the record and rather than uh, wait all those years and stay signed and try to work with the country music establishment as it was at the time, I just went independent again. A lot of people would have stayed in the game in Nashville, but I was still living in Colorado. I didn't really feel like I was lined up with the Nashville uh, mainstream, and, and I haven't to this day. So yeah. it probably was just the way it would you know had to turn out. <clears throat> people like Sean Camp, for instance, he recorded a record that didn't come out. Yeah. And he didn't look back. He tried to put, I think they put out records uh, of his different forms uh, for a couple of years. And then 
he went on his own and sold songs. Meanwhile, those songs waited for a long time. And then years later, they put out that record. Somebody found out that he had a record in the can and they actually put it out in its original form, which is another way that that can happen. But he sat and waited. I didn't wait. I just uh, I got, <laughs> got around it. Well, I'm glad because I like that album a lot. I remember talking to you, like I said, when that happened, and I knew that you had the songs recorded but didn't have access to them for a time period. I didn't know that you actually did get it back out, so that's why I was kind of curious about that. But uh, that was an interesting thing for me to understand because I didn't, you know, I was young enough unfair. to not, not know anything about that business at all yeah. and how that would end up on. on and for me, as a young person, I'm just sitting here. This is this is just a travesty. You know, mm-hmm. Tim's stuff is is locked up in a in a cage not somewhere. Use it, but they won't let him either. <laughs> you know, and it it really bummed me out. So yeah, well, it's a uh, it, it's a good story, and uh, I'm you know if it got you help you get you on my side, that was helpful. But it was a little bit of a white <laughs> lie. But you know, it uh, <laughs> it's just. Uh, no, I had a I had a thing going, you see, already with uh, the folk and bluegrass circuit, and I really didn't I really needed to tend to that. I didn't want to let that fire burn out while the country fire was trying to be be lit, you know. Sure. So um, I went back and tended to that, and that it proved to be my my main. I mean, it's it's where I belong. It's where I play. Is I'm still playing that circuit to this day, so it's okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's uh, it can it can be a trap, you know that uh, major label thing. You know, I always wanted to my I can say this now, but I hope <laughs> that I would have I hope that I would have one or two records come out and do fairly well, like a lot of artists do, and then they kind of fade back in to another situation. John Hartford was is a template that worked really well for that. He had those mm-hmm. records on RCA that when he finally found his voice he was about to leave that scene and uh but he had this major label push which brought his name out he was on tv a lot and then he was able to make a career on 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 the little part of that that succeeded you know that kept going the gentle on my mind part and everything that went after it so uh i was only hoping to have a little bit of a you know increased exposure to start a solo career but it it didn't really work on the major label, but I ended up just transferring it to the folk and bluegrass world. Yeah, I'd say to, to great success because we've, yeah. we've always enjoyed watching you perform and uh, really appreciate you taking the time. I know you're, you're busy and uh, right now touring with your wife. Pretty, You just got back from Europe, I believe. So I appreciate yeah. you taking the time to, to sit down with us and be a part of the podcast because we've been talking about you amongst ourselves for a long time, so it's great <laughs> to actually get to talk with you about you. <laughs> Yeah, well, he's excited to, you know, we're going to play in your area. I'm sorry we're going to miss you because you'll be at uh, Walnut Valley, which is a good place to be if you're doing what you do. And uh, I hope you have a great weekend there. But, um, yeah, I'm looking Mm -hmm. forward to playing the Fox Hole in Springfield. And, you know, uh, I haven't played in Springfield, I don't think, since the Hot Rise days. So this will be – this is like going back. Last last month we were in – in France and in Prague, in the Czech Republic, and uh, brought the band, Jan and I and Mike Bubb and Corey Walker and uh, Shad Cobb were over there playing our bluegrass set. And, you know, playing, playing in Prague was, that was a first. Playing in France was, uh, uh, was the first time for 
man, since nineteen early nineties probably that played there, and those people remembered Hot Rise playing there, and it was a great it was a great thing you know to to see all these people that had been there in the eighties for Hot Rise and they they still remembered and uh, I'm just hoping I go back to Springfield people will remember that I'm, I'm that sure I played will. there I once know in a while, but uh, yeah it's uh it's great uh, you know retracing your steps um, I'm. I'm in the beginning stages of making a songbook. I'm coming up on 50 years in the music biz and turning 70 next year. And uh, looking back at this song list, you know, and uh, trying to pick 40 songs to put in the in the book is interesting. And seeing where you know what happened and going back back in over the years is pretty interesting. And that's it's been fun okay. talking to you guys for that same reason. You know, I, I still feel like I'm learning and I still have new things to do. But it's instructive to go back and uh, see where you've been, and maybe uh, I can relearn some things. Well, again, I want to uh, thank you uh, for all the things that have happened. Uh, you know, me personally, I know Jeremy and Jason will be in the same realm. Uh, for us, musically, uh, we've brought it up multiple times. But also, personally, every time I'd run into you at an event or something, uh, I always thought, you know, you wouldn't remember us or wouldn't, you know, know much. Of, but you seem to have followed and uh, were so kind uh, every single time that I, I ran into you. And it was just so cool to have somebody that that there was such a huge influence on us wanting to play music, not just wanting, but also teaching us music uh, by way of just being around it and then continually having these kind of conversations. It is so awesome to be able to catch up with you. And it's it's awe inspiring for me. So, well, you know, it's a it's a tribute to yourselves that you've you've uh, stuck with it. You know, I, I could tell you got that you guys had the drive to play music early on. It was obvious. And the fact that you kept at it is really inspiring to a lot of us. You know, we, you know, some of us will, will, will dabble in this, and some of us will take it all the way to the finish line. And I commend you on your, on your uh, stick to itiveness here. And uh, <laughs> let's let's keep let's keep heading there. <laughs> yeah, that's what I say. I want to. I I hope to continue to see more of what you're doing. Uh, the band right now sounds great. Uh, you just named uh, a lineup that is some can of the best. Can you explain what's wrong with Corey Rock Walker? Yeah. Can you can you explain what is wrong with Corey Walker? <laughs> <laughs> Corey is a funny guy. Okay, he, on here. he is. He's uh yeah. You need to have a podcast with him for a school project. He he's he's, he's uh. You know, talking, we're talking with him, and you know, he's thinking up ideas of questions to ask on his, on his uh, Facebook feed. It's pretty <laughs> just funny. Just fight. He's just trolling to see what kind of, what kind of reaction he can get. You know, and he gets it's nice. Really. Yeah, I love it because no, we grew up with Corey, and I don't remember him being so cantankerous as he is nowadays. <laughs> <laughs> he's just having fun. No, it's great. I mean, it's a really, uh, a really co- a great crew. Corey's, you know. He's, he wants to talk about the entire situation with all the bluegrass he's around, and uh, and he, he knows <laughs> it well, and he can play it like the wind. And Chad Cobb is like this yeah. very cerebral, virtuoso, <laughs> yes. like a one-of-a-kind guy. Hardly yeah. has a word to say, but he's, he says an awful lot with his music. And then Mike yes. Bubb is like Mr. All-Around Guy Knows Everybody, and yeah. he makes everybody sound good, and we're, we're lucky to have those guys. And you know they're not they're uh, modular sidemen and the way Nashville works they they play with a lot of other groups and uh, so 
we pick and choose, you know, the the gigs we can book those guys on, and uh, mm-hmm. luckily we're they we've got first dibs on those guys most times, so that's good. Yeah. But Corey, it's harder now. He's got his he's putting all his eggs, more of his eggs in the uh, East Nash grass basket, and that's as it should be. Yeah. So we'll see how it it, it continues to evolve. Well, this is a, a reconnection, by the way. I know we're going to uh, wrap it up, but you and Mike have been playing music off and on for uh, a long period of time. In fact, uh, I think, were you not part of the uh, the reason why Weary Hearts came to record an album and all that kind of stuff, if I remember the story correctly? Yeah, I met with the Weary Hearts. They, would, they just formed up, and they were looking for somebody to help them produce a record, and I was just starting to do that. So, yeah, that's one of the first records I produced for a, for a real record label. I guess it was for Flying Fish, and uh, went to Nashville and recorded at Jack Jack Clement's studio and everything. That was really, you know, uh, we were both getting our feet wet that way. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, you know, Mike, I I really admired Mike all early on because here was a guy who was a banjo champion who decided to play bass so he could get in a better band, you know. And uh, <laughs> he was in a band with that luminary group of. Uh, Chris Jones and Ron Block and Butch Baldessari. Yeah. I mean, it was kind of a strong lineup. And uh, I remember Sean Camp was an early fiddler. He played on that record and Ward Stout. And uh, it was, uh, yeah, that was, uh, you know, those guys were hungry. I remember they yeah. they uh, they went to, we had the studio time booked. And I'm not sure they knew how they were going to pay for their expenses, but they won this bigma contest you yeah. know, on the same trip and i, I think i think they kind of knew they could win some money but you know they're all sort of sleeping five guys to a That's hotel awesome. room and stuff in those days now you're back to pay, playing music with mike That's yeah. Awesome. yeah i mean uh, some things never change yeah it's great i love it yeah are you all still crammed five guys in a room uh <laughs> <laughs> are you gonna enter this bigma contest <laughs> yeah, we've graduated from those days, but uh, those were, you know, they're they're important days, and you you can go back to those real fast if you don't watch yourself. <laughs> You're not careful. Yes, you can. In fact, uh, I've been seeing the economy numbers. I think we might be headed there, Jay. Yeah. We may all be moving into the same house here soon. No. Who knows? Uh, anyway, this has been amazing, Tim, and we could probably sit here and talk all day about yes. all the times. Yes. Sorry, we're going to miss you when you go. come to town. Yeah, I'm going to make these guys pack up really fast so we can try to catch the last song. <laughs> all right, straight then. to the show. <laughs> Yeah, have a great time at uh, Walnut Valley and uh, hold it down for us over there. We'll do it. All right. You take care, buddy. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Take care of yourselves. Bye-bye. Guys, Tim O'Brien... Super nice guy. Guys. Super super nice guys. guys. Yeah. For, Not a ton of energy, but that's kind very of cool thing. guy. Like, yeah, we were talking about his unique playing style and his unique singing style. Both of them are just like as loose. And I, I, Christy Lee in his video on playing mandolin said Tim gave him advice that when you're holding your pick, you should be like a dish rag that you're shaking out. And that's really the way Tim plays. It's just kind of his whole body is loose and the way yeah, he sings, his mouth's loose. It just it gives him such a like unforced effort on his playing and singing. So maybe that's yeah. the secret. He's comfortable with it. I like to talk about songwriting too, because that uh, it's amazing to me that not just a great musician, but also 
so many big hit songs and stuff that he's even, pretty modest about it actually yeah it was really crazy <laughs> it's like wait a minute no uh, no these you were big hits. You, were, you got songs recorded by some of the biggest he, country he, artists he didn't in the mention world. when he said he paid for his kids to go to college that it was harvard uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> full ticket tim o'brien scholarship no that's uh, it's amazing it's an honor just to get to talk to him not only from his music musical history alone but the songwriting and just the connections we have from Colorado I was hoping to give me the secret to songwriting like uh, yeah, have it? he probably has it he's just Dude, not going to share it with me he's, he's got to keep it that is, keep it altered and sets a secret talent. cabal it's, well, it's like the Illuminati that do you, you even know what a cabal allow. is yeah um, you kick the cabal into the goal <laughs> or you throw the cabal you could pass the cabal I think that was a thing I used to use in Aztec worlds where you had to throw the little Cable hoop yeah, <laughs> the cable. <laughs> anyway, anyway, yeah, very cool. That they we won't let that on secret here. out, Jeremy. I'm yeah. just saying that's the the cabal secret. We didn't yeah. get to talk uh, about his uh, modern day uh, love story uh, song, which was one, one of my favorite. Uh, talking about how to write emails and his computer crashed, and that was, that was a that's, that's pretty darn uh, that's pretty darn creative, guys. Uh, yeah. Everybody needs one. I was of just listening to. Uh, Oh, those mighty kings of the jungle. I can yeah. understand this. Yeah. The Old Boy Boy album is great. Curry. Um, so good. Really, the one that really just solidified Tim O'Brien in my playlist for all eternity was the Traveler album. Um, later in my mid, early 20s, I started listening to that again all the time. And that's just something you go back to all the time. Just some of the greatest songs, some of the best music I think he's ever recorded. And you didn't tell him that. Are you saying that he's just done after I'm not that? Tell him that. I didn't tell him that. <laughs> sure. oh. He might have the one cool more thing, One thing that I didn't point out, I was gonna, not going to... You're pretty Jeremy quiet was talking about The fact that Tim, his music changes every time he records in a record. It's all different. But there is still that same line yeah, in there. When ones. I put all his records, which I have a playlist of all his recordings, and I put it on shuffle... It all fits together still, but it's just, true. there are differences. And I think it's part of his, like he said, he follows his nose. He, 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 he like after traveling to his home country, you know, he, he, he does a couple albums that are really heavily inspired by that. And, you know, so it's, just, uh, I, it's Tim O'Brien, but he does change every time. He brought it up, but I thought it was really interesting that, you know, even though it's new, different styles, you can always tell it's a Tim O'Brien yeah. song. Because the name, even there. even with the other artists, right. even the other artists who record it, you listen to it and go, oh, "Yeah, that's a Tim O'Brien song." I can tell it is. Yeah. It's 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 pretty awesome. So, yeah. well, that was fun. I'm glad we got to do it. This is the reason we do the podcast is we get to talk to the whole reason we opened a store just so we could make a podcast and then talk to these people. Between the TV show and the podcast, (laughs) that's basically our ticket to actually talk to people and have them talk back (laughs) (laughs) rather than the back of their heads as they're walking away. (laughs) Hey, you. Hey, hey, hey. No, he's not going to talk to me. Guys, I can't wait to go camping with you again soon. No, no. That was entirely too That's true. We're all stuck in the same trailer. Same camper. Oh. Jeez. Not good. Yeah. Exhausting. All right. Thank you guys for listening. Uh, please you guys keep want me to bring liking. My, uh, Dutch oven to the. No. Oh, no. I'll bring mine, though. <laughs> <laughs> please keep listening. Uh, keep telling your friends. That's subscribe the and share review. This with one person, and then they share it with one person. Pretty soon we got three people listening. Our numbers right. will double. <laughs> so thank you guys for listening, and please share it as much as you can. Thank you. It listener. is a lot of fun. I think we're nipping at the heels of some of the top pod. Joe Rogan is shaking in his boots right now. Yeah. Really? Is that true? See if he can get Tim O'Brien. I'm going to make show. him eat 
Madagascar hissing cockroaches. <laughs> That's why he's scary. As we hang him from a building 5,000 feet in the air. Get it? Fear factor, guys. <laughs> yeah, All right. He's- Moving on. <laughs> we'll see you guys. Love you guys. We'll Goodbye. See you. We'll see you podcast listeners in two weeks. Bye. Bye. Goodbye. Bye. Love you. <laughs> Love you. The Acoustic Shop knows people. Handmade by Trent Pruitt, Hinkley Hinkleston, and Jason Chapman for The Acoustic Shop. Theme song written and performed by Ofer Corin. And please remember to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.